Are you ready to make 2017 the year you transform your life? You can wait for something to happen or you're actually going to decide to go, go home after this weekend to do something about that. We all know that we have a very, very limited amount of time on this earth. So let's not have repeated years. Live your own life. Make the choice, make the decision for your own life. Fear is where you develop courage. There's a moment going, holy crap, all right, I'm gonna do this now. The wellness breakthrough is coming. And so you actually have that choice every single morning, every single day, every single moment to decide whether you're gonna live it to the fullest or not. Join myself, Marcus Pierce, and the wellness guys, Damien Christoph, Lawrence Tam, and Brett Hill for two nights and three days of transformation at the country place. 10 acres of breathtaking rainforest in the Dandenong Ranges of Victoria, February 17 to 19. It's each and every single one of you are gonna support each other in your journey, whatever that journey is. Couples discounts available, limited spots remaining for all information and to watch the spine chilling video, go to thewellnessbreakthrough.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I'm joined by Brad Kearns. He's, a, he's from California and he's a noted speaker, author and coach in the health and, wellness, health and fitness world over the last two decades. He's had a nine-year career as a triathlete. Um, his highlights include a streak of seven victories in a row, a World Duathlon Series Championship and two National Triathlon Championships. So he really knows what he's doing. He currently works with Mark Sisson from Mark's Primal Blueprint. He's president of Primal Blueprint Publishing. He helped develop the Primal Health Coach Certification Program and has delivered nearly 30 primal lifestyle seminars across the USA. This man really knows what he's talking about. He also co-authored the book Primal Endurance with Mark Sisson, which was released this year, which is an awesome approach to endurance exercise, but doing it from a primal platform, which I love. So I can't wait to chat to this man. Uh, I've got so many questions I want to ask. Welcome to the show, Brad Kearns. Good day, all you listeners. I'm glad to be here from the United States of America. <laughs> Welcome to the show, mate. It's so good to have you on board. We've been chatting backwards and forwards over email, and uh, I'm really excited to hear the information you're going to share with everyone. So, tell us a bit about your background, Brad. It's really interesting. Started out in triathlons, which I believe was similar to Mark Sisson. Um, what, where, at what stage along that journey did you get into primal exercise and, and primal eating as well. Uh, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say many years after I retired from triathlon racing and uh, <laughs> I had a nice career in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, I was a national champion here in the States uh, and I was number three ranked in the world in 91. But um, you always found the, the Aussies were, were, were tougher and um, more resilient than I. And so I finally had my tail between my legs and just was forced to retire because these guys kept pumping out top, top athletes in the sport. So 
I know the listeners down there, it's such a rich part of your culture, the triathlon scene, and I'm glad to uh, glad to connect with you on that level. But yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, we didn't know anything about the, um, the low-carb concepts that are the foundation of primal paleo today. So I was on the sugar-burning machine and training my butt off and learning uh, certain things the hard way with trials and tribulations that, that you get when you're trying to uh, perform at the elite level and get better at the elite level, especially trying to squeeze more out of your body. Um, and I, I put a lot of that in the primal endurance book, the, you know, the lessons that I learned such as, um, you know, slowing down and emphasizing aerobic pace to enable yourself to go faster in a race and in a highly anaerobic competitive competition. So, um, you know, these things are, are great to reflect on. And, uh, now when you have the, uh, the wonderful momentum, uh, around primal paleo eating and the um, realization that a relatively low carbohydrate lifestyle is going to be far more healthy than the conventional wisdom's grain-based, high sugar, high carbohydrate diet. Uh, now today's athlete can really benefit from you know the foundation that has been laid by the old timers like me and the progression of thought and science. And you know now we're looking today at you know the ability to. Um, push yourself and challenge yourself with competitive goals, endurance goals, whatever it is, CrossFit, strength, performance goals, um, but do it in such a way that supports your health, that doesn't break you down, that stays away from all the pitfalls and the setbacks that occur when um, you do it in an indiscriminate way, which is kind of how it went you know, back in the old days. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, it'd be so interesting to go back now, Brad, and to see how your career may have been different if you knew what you know now. You know, what do you think would have been the biggest differences? Do you think it would have been in terms of athletic performance or in terms of recovery or in terms of injuries? You know, what do you think would change if you went back to yourself as a younger man knowing what you know now? Yeah, that's a great question and I, I bet everybody can do that with um, all areas of life and probably the <laughs> The number one thing that I uh, w- would have changed or knowing what I know now is I, I would have put um, you know, my first prize check of $1,000 into Apple stock in 1986, <laughs> and now I'd have like $54,700, I don't know. Uh, but you know, looking back is um, it, one thing that's kind of interesting to think about today, and this is coming from uh, Dr. Phil Maffetone advancing this idea that... Uh, he says you never need to exceed 90% of max heart rate in training. Hmm. And that's that's quite a bit below. I mean, that's 20 beats below your max. And so I reflect back to all those workouts where in the name of you know peak competitive development and developing my mindset and my competitive resiliency, um, you know, we pushed ourselves to the to the wall, mate. I mean, we went all out. And, you know, left it out there on the on the training course or in the swimming pool or the running track. And we thought, wow, you know, that was such a hard workout that now the race is going to be a piece of cake. And I'm so much of a tougher person now and I'm more confident. But really, um, the stress impact of these high, high maximum intensity workouts um, possibly is not worth the return on investment. Mm. And what you get is that you get that buzz of uh, pleasure endorphin-like hormones when you finish a super, super hard effort. But it's a uh, sincere stress to the body that takes a lot of time to recover from and rebound from. And we know that these workouts uh, are effective. You can look at all the science showing that you know high-intensity interval training will deliver you know huge gains in strength, power, endurance, uh, uh, body composition, all that things in only six weeks and all that kind of stuff. But I think we sometimes forget about um, you know the stress cost of all the things you do in life, not just training. So, you know, when I worked my 11 years of 70 hours a week to make partner in the law firm, 
um, you know, was it worth it? And what would you do differently? And some people might look back and answer, gee, maybe I should have protected my health so that now I don't have to, you know, battle with the accelerated decline of aging caused by, you know, the cavalier approach in my younger years. And so I, same, same thing as an athlete, like maybe if I just dialed it back a little bit at every workout, um, it's possibly could have led to improved competitive performance. Because here's the thing in competition, when, when you, when the, um, what was the Aussie saying that they like to say, um, oh, the bullshit stops when the flag drops. So, you know, when the, when the, when the flag drops to start the race, that's when all the talking and the posturing goes away and you just go out there and you compete. And anybody in a competitive setting, um, is going to get, you know, that surge of energy and intensity and focus that causes you to bring out your best performance. And so we don't really need to train our brains to be tough competitors. It's already in there deep inside. And if you take care of your body and take care of your spirit and don't push yourself at times when you're not really supposed to push yourself and you'd rather rest, um, those are kind of things that could lead to becoming the most you know, tough, uh, intense competitor of them all because you're kind of babying yourself the rest of the time. That's so interesting, Brad, and, and you know it flies in the face of what we've been told for so long, and and really stuff that we even still hear. You know, we interviewed just a couple of years ago a you know a trainer who trains Australian rules footballers, and you know his approach was well, people can go harder and further than they think they can, and and you just need to push them and show them that they can go further than they think they can, and and they were really. Um, you know, they were really pushing people beyond those boundaries. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is that it's actually someone from my football team. And, and over the last two years, they haven't done so well. And they they've, haven't been performing that well. And, and they have had a, a spate of injuries amongst the team. So it, 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 that's what jumped into my head as you're talking about that, Brad. And I find that really interesting. And, you know, I know for myself, uh, as I was saying off air, you know, I've been doing CrossFit at the moment. And, you know, it seems many of the people doing CrossFit will do that five, even six days a week. And, and I've found for myself that, you know, if I try and do five or six days a week, then then I do tend to get into that adrenal fatigue. You know, I get run down, I get tired, I, I struggle um, physically and mentally. Whereas, you know, if I, if I do maybe three times a week and I give myself that opportunity to rest and recover in between and, and maybe on the weekend do something that's a little bit slower with the kids, whether that's going for a walk or a, you know, a hike or a swim or a paddle on the kayak or something like that, then then that you know, that resting in between and, and you know, that variety in terms of the exercise, I seem to do a lot better and avoid that stress that I think you're talking about. You know, is that the sort of stuff we're talking about, Brad? We just need to, to dial it back a little bit, focus on I guess quality over quantity and um, and focus on not burning ourselves out? Oh, for sure. And um it's, you know, 99.7% of the listeners, sorry for about those three people I left out, but, um, you know, everyone knows this and can nod their head so quickly. And then we look at real life and how we're actually behaving. And, uh, and many times we behave in a manner that's incongruent with our stated goals and values and beliefs. <laughs> so we all know that overtraining stupid and that you're a dumbass for going in there with a sore shoulder or a sore throat and pushing yourself to one more workout. But it just kind of happens and it's very common that um, the highly motivated goal-oriented driven athlete makes that mistake of overuse and, and overdoing it and overstress. And again, back to the, the first thing I said about it is, um, you know, we get that adrenaline buzz and that endorphin buzz after, and it feels good to accomplish something and to check the box off on your list that says, yet again, I attended the morning workout and I kicked butt and I put my name up on the board. Um, but if you're doing, 
you know, whatever you re- relate five, five to six uh, CrossFit workouts a week or putting in, you know, an excessive amount of miles as an endurance athlete, um, by definition, you're performing in a mediocre manner where none of those workouts are terribly impressive because you're too tired to achieve a peak performance and you haven't recovered from the previous time where you pushed yourself pretty hard. So you're kind of going into this black hole where you're getting the work done and you're, you're, you're putting, you're putting in the, uh, the blanks into your training log and the hours on your schedule. Um, but you're not really, you're, you're kind of departing from the, the idea of peak competitive performance and all that that entails. And again, instead you're just becoming, you know, athletics or fitness is becoming just another outlet for obsessive compulsive behavior tendencies. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was laughing as you were saying that because, you know, I literally went to CrossFit this morning. And as you do when you've been to CrossFit, I posted it on social media that I've been to CrossFit and posted it up. So I'm, I'm guilty of doing exactly what you're talking about there, I reckon, Brad. But but I did all right this morning, so I was pretty happy about it. Now, um, mate, one of the things you mentioned earlier was you said you talked about getting people to slow down to go faster when it comes to triathlons. Now, that really... Uh, sparked my interest because you know consistently we get told that if you want to get faster at your triathlons or or in my case you know people talking about running longer distances whether that's half marathons or marathons or whatever that is people say well if you want to get faster at running your marathon then you need to work on doing some more speed work you know you need to work on running at a higher speed and getting used to doing that so that you can translate that speed into your half marathon or marathon or triathlon or whatever it happens to be and and it seems to me that maybe you're suggesting that might not be the case or is there still a place for that sort of training brad um i guess there's a place if you're on the olympic team right (laughs) and if you're not on the olympic team and you're not running you know two hours eight or better you know it's not going to be really a relevant thing to discuss your speed because we're going out to the marathons and we're seeing people run um you know, an exceptional performance is three hours, which is jogging. It's seven minute pace, whatever. And an average performance or, you know, a a decent, uh, well-trained athlete is possibly four hours. Four hours represents the top 10% of finishers at the Los Angeles Marathon, 25,000 people. So once once you get past four hours, and I'm not denigrating the performance anyway, but once you get past four hours, you're going down to, you know, a fast paced walk or a slow jog. And, and that's the thousands and thousands of people has nothing to do with speed and has almost no contribution to your performance. So in a race like a marathon or even a half marathon, you know, the overwhelming majority of your, uh, your performance is dictated by your aerobic capacity, not your anaerobic capacity. Um, so it's, it's, you're going to get that return on investment again from low stress, aerobically paced workouts that build uh, and improve your ability to burn fat. And that translates into, um, you know, your best competitive performance. As, as you get better at burning fat, you can go faster and faster at that same fat burning heart rate, that low heart rate, but your, your speed increases because you become more efficient. Um, and so we see like, um, I, I spend time in Mammoth Lakes, California. It's a high altitude training place, a popular training place and ski resort, 8,000 feet, which is what, 2,500 meters above sea level. Um, and Dina Castor, the Olympic bronze medalist, American record holder, 219 female marathon performer, one of the greatest of all time. You see her running through this town at uh, 2,500 meters above sea level and she's, she's jogging along, smiling, and she's flying and her pace is you know, incredible. And we think, wow, what a fast runner, and look how much speed she has. Mm. But in relative terms, 
she's just jogging, just like you and I are jogging and <laughs> sucking air at 2,500 meters. And, you know, can, can um, you know, the pace slows down to a crawl when you're talking about difference from sea level. But it's the conditioning of the athlete that makes, you know, an aerobic pace relevant. So whatever that is for us and for most people, it could be a jog walk right now when they start to slow down and train properly rather than just stimulating stress hormone production at every workout by, you know, com uh, jogging or, or running at a speed that's beyond the aerobic capacity and into the glucose-burning anaerobic realm. Yeah, I tell you what, you're so right when you talk about the pace that they go at and just make it look easy. Like, I remember running in the city to surf in Sydney, which is kind of one of our famous races over here. It's a 14K race, but it's quite hilly. And, uh, and some of the athletes that went in there were, you know, Olympic-level marathon athletes. And I remember watching them take off from the start line and they were just an incredible pace and obviously just doing it with ease and, and knowing that they could just do that for the entire 14 kilometers. And I was just astounded. I was looking and thinking, I wasn't sure if I could actually keep up with them for 100 meters or 200 meters, let alone 14 kilometers. And But, but they just do it so easy. So, Brad, give us an idea of what this looks like you know so so what's a training week look like for someone who you would coach uh to be doing one of these endurance events whether that be a marathon or a triathlon or something like that what sort of work are they doing and how many times a week and how intense and how hard all those sort of things uh well so let's say you set a goal and you're you're brand new and you're uh, trying to do like a 13.1 mile run maybe you've done some shorter ones and you've set an endurance goal and so you have this big focus that six months time you're gonna be on the starting line for a marathon and you wonder if you can do it so you go out there and you start burning a ton of energy putting in as much training as you can until you get injured sick or burnt out which you likely will with an indiscriminate approach so the first thing to realize is that um, endurance training should be enjoyable and it should be energizing and nourishing and helping balance your life and give you um, a balance to your possibly busy indoor dominant lifestyle. Um, so that concept of struggling and suffering in the name of race preparation is completely, uh, it's completely whacked, it's completely off base, but the average recreational participant uh, gets this perception because of flawed um, conventional and, and cultural values. Um, so even the elite athletes who are training very, very hard, you know, the legend athletes of, of your country like McKinley Jones, the great uh, Olympic uh, and world champion and Ironman champion triathlete and Greg Welch and all those old timers on the, on the triathlon scene, um, they universally enjoyed their endurance lifestyle, enjoyed all their workouts. They worked very, very hard and spent all day training in many cases, uh, you know, through a very rigorous training regimen, but it was never a struggle or suffer fest. And so on those days when, um, and I'm referencing myself, I had to learn this the hard way, when I woke up with a sore throat throughout my career as a, a competitive runner in the school years and then on the professional circuit, it took me a long time to realize that when I woke up with a sore throat as an elite athlete, my job was to <laughs> unplug the alarm clock and go back to sleep and ride it out and watch videos in bed and you know have that luxury that I did when I was a, an athlete to to not have other responsibilities but you know as a recreational athlete if there's anything uh, disturbed with your health or even your mood your stress level your energy level you recalibrate your workout ideas to align with the other stress patterns in your life so uh, you hear people all the time say, yep, only seven more weeks of my, my training program, MME is the spelling of that word, 
um, until I have the race. And so I'm really suffering now. I can't socialize and I'm so exhausted. And it, this is just a common refrain that this is what it's supposed to be like. And it's absolutely not that way. Even for those at the elite level who are putting their heart and soul into it and, and competing for, um, you know, for money rather than uh, fun and games. So that's the first thing is that if you're suffering, struggling, uh, stressed about your training, um, you, you, you definitely want to recalibrate your approach to where it's fun, it fits in with your lifestyle and all those things. And then, you know, secondly is um, emphasize aerobic development so that you're running at a comfortable pace or whatever you're doing, cycling, um, doing water sports, uh, triathlon. Um, the comfortable pace is what makes it enjoyable and energizing and nourishing. And those times where you push yourself and really bear down and, and try to go at a high speed are few and far between. And because they are, and because they're only conducted when you're 100% rested and motivated and energized to do a high-intensity workout, those are fun too. So that's a key point. Like, um, you know, when it's time to, you know, you can use the word, oh, we were suffering, we did seven hill repeats or whatever. But on the day that you do that, you want to be so pumped and motivated that you can't wait to go attack that hill seven times with your pals and with your mates. And, you know, you, you enjoy the whole experience because it's not the wrong day where you have to drag yourself out of bed to go to go kick butt. And I think in the the, the coaching model of uh, youth sports and endurance sports, you know, people grow up on the swim teams and they're so conditioned to just showing up no matter what and jumping in that freezing cold water with their sore throat and their sore shoulder in the name of, you know, competitive excellence. And it's just flat out wrong. I love it, mate. I love it. So... You know, I guess the the challenge we've got then is we're talking about, you know, making sure you get enough rest, not going too hard, not pushing yourself too far. And and for some people they are doing exactly that. They're they're pushing themselves beyond, they're getting themselves into adrenal fatigue, they're not able to perform as you said at their best and at their maximum in their workouts, and so they are going too far. And then I guess there's a lot of people at the other end of the spectrum where they're perhaps not doing enough. You know, they're struggling to get into exercise and to get motivated to do that on a regular day-to-day basis or, you know, every couple of days or whatever that is basis. Um, so how do people know where to draw that line? Like, like at what point is it like I need to rest and take care of my body? And then at what point does it become, well, I'm kind of just making too many excuses here for not exercising. And, you know, how do you find that happy medium in between those two? Oh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because when we're talking about a population attracted to endurance goals, we're talking about the most uh, energetic, productive, inspired, motivated, driven 1% of the population or whatever, point zero zero one percent Yeah. So... I'm going to argue and say that there's so little of that laziness in pervading in the endurance culture that it's not even worth discussing. And I have uh, Andrew McNaughton on my show all the time, the Primal Endurance Podcast. Check it out. It's really fun if you guys like this show and you're into endurance sports. But he said, and he's now 54 years old. He was a top athlete back, you know, 25 years ago. And he says, it's taken me this long to realize that the best way to um, determine, make my training decisions uh, is just check my mood and train according to my moods. So if they wake up in the morning, he's excited to train, he'll go out and do something. And if he kind of feels blah, blah, or it's raining, or he's getting these signs and signals like the sore throat or the sore shoulder, he honors those. And if you want to counter me and say, oh, mate, this guy's full of, full of baloney. I have to push myself every day. You know, if you're waking up and 
you're sort of that lazy morning person or whatever you want to call yourself, uh, then the checkpoint or the test you can do is to lace up the shoes and get out there and run the first kilometer and then see how you feel. And if indeed you're so glad that you got out of the house and you end up feeling great and you carry on and you go, that's fine. So getting out of the house and starting out is you know, a valid uh, uh, decision-making process. And I would do that commonly um, when I was doing my uh, long bike rides and training. We had a seven-hour bike ride uh, in the Sierras and the mountains that was extremely challenging, 12,700 feet of climbing, took all day long. And what I would do is I'd go the first hour and a half of the seven-hour course, and there was a gas station, uh, a petrol station, and I'd fill up my water bottles there and get the last food. And then you're heading out way into the wilderness where there's no civilization at all. There's no place to get water, food, nothing. And I'd get to that gas station, I'd sit down, and I'd assess the condition of my mind, my motivation, my legs, my body, and make a decision there whether to keep going or not. So even though I set out for the day planning to do seven-hour ride and accomplish this great thing that was the fundamental, that was this, the cornerstone of my training schedule, uh, on many occasions, I would turn from that gas station and go back home and take a nap, and that would be my, uh, my package for the day rather than just doing the ride because it was scheduled. Um, so all these kind of things, if we can open up our, uh, you know, open up our perspective to all kinds of different options, which might mean... Um, for many people, uh, bailing out for a month or two months just to get straight because you're in an overtraining spiral that's lasted for two years. And believe me, the gyms will be open in two months' time. The races will be available to sign up for if you take two months away or you take a year away or you take whatever you need. Uh, but I think we're caught in um, kind of a frenzy of uh, keeping up with our peers having this uh, misplaced competitive intensity when you're a highly motivated, driven person and everything you do is, is spot on and top notch and now you're applying this driven devotion and motivation to your endurance goals as you did for your business or your schooling or whatever, your pursuit of your Sheila's, I don't know, whatever. But um, if you do that, it could be a big mistake because um, the process of fitness development is dynamic and it's organic and we're talking about a living breathing person that might not have the right mood every single day to go out and slam it yeah i love what you're saying there brad because i can totally relate to that like i know this morning i got up early for crossfit i was feeling pretty tired you know i, I got there i started warming up and i thought wow my legs are still feeling it from wednesday's workout you know it's friday today my legs were still feeling it from wednesday's workout you know i don't know how i'm going to go today I'm, i might need to sort of dial it back a bit but once I got a minute or two into my workout, I was fine. And I, and I actually, you know, set a couple of PBs this morning and after my workout felt great. So I love your idea of sort of just getting up and getting started and then reassessing and seeing how you're feeling. Because so often you can, as you said, be five minutes into your workout and feel totally different to how you were feeling five minutes before you started your workout. So good tip, mate. Um, you mentioned earlier you were talking about, you know, doing longer, you know, slower stuff, but then also sometimes, you know, some days you might go and do the seven hill sprints. So how does that look? You know, how often would you do each of those in a typical training program? Um, you know, I know that you've said it's going to depend on, on your mood and how you're feeling each day and those sort of things. But, you know, is that more those hill sprints or that more high intensity stuff, stuff that you might do once a week, once a fortnight, once a month? You know, how often would you do that sort of stuff? Um, first thing I, I would refrain from answering with a, uh, a pat answer because, um, 
it's according to the time of season and your intuitive sense of when it's time to open up the throttle. And I think the best uh, the best thing to do, and this is the framework of primal endurance. So if you're reading the book, you can get this a, a better answer rather than the flippant answer by the guest on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But if you um, if you build that aerobic base as your first and foremost priority at the beginning of every competitive season, and you spend two, three months, maybe more, just training strictly aerobically with not a single high intensity workout, that gives you this block of time to really upregulate your fat burning genes and aerobic energy producing muscle fibers and enzymes, and you're building this base. Uh, and they call it base, and it's a great uh, descriptive term because this is the platform from which to launch to conduct those high-intensity workouts and competitive efforts. But you first have to build that base. And if we're talking in terms of endurance, but if you think about the same thing in the gym with CrossFit, like if you want to deadlift, first you've got to do it with a PVC pipe and get your form and your mechanics down. And then you can do it with an empty bar that weighs um, uh, quick translate, you know, 20 kilos or something. Um, and, and you do reps and you do, you know, work to make sure that you know what to do. Only then do you load the weight on. So you have to have a foundation, a base with, you know, connective tissue resiliency and cardiovascular conditioning. And then is, then is the time to think about, Hey, when should I throw in some high intensity stuff? And again, if your goals are, you know, if your goals are longer than 10 K you're talking about an exclusive endurance, uh, ambition, and so your best return on investment is going to be from the uh, slow-paced aerobic workouts. And, um, you know, we have the maximum aerobic function test that we promote, Dr. Phil Maffetone's maximum aerobic function test, where you can uh, do a, a sub-maximal aerobic heart rate test and do the same course like running eight laps around a running track and timing yourself. And your time should drop steadily as you improve your aerobic capacity. So that's kind of a fun thing to do to track your progress to ensure that you are getting faster, even though you're just jogging around at a frustratingly slow pace and all that. Um, Now, to take that analogy into the gym, one thing that I like to do is to let's take a competitive guy like you. What's the what's the maximum number of pull ups you could do at one one rep max or one set max? What could you do uh, for for a bet for a million dollars? Oh, I don't know. For a million dollars, I I I might for a million dollars, I might get to 20 maybe. Okay, so. You know, Maybe let's not. say 20 is, <laughs> represents the, you know, the highest expression of your potential and 15 for not a million dollars or something like that is, a, is an awesome, you know, effort. Yeah. And so if that's where you're at, um, I'd like to think about uh, most of your workouts in the gym, you have that capability to approximate um, your best. So maybe you could do 12 on a random day or whatever. Um, but what happens if you're in this uh, overtraining pattern is you're in there and you're, you're only probably good for seven or eight most days because you're sore, tight, stiff, whatever. And same for the endurance person. If you're putting in a lot of mediocre workouts where they're a little too difficult to really uh, promote recovery, but they're nothing anywhere near approaching your 15 or 16 pull-ups that you could do if you really open up the throttle, I'd rather trade that consistency of getting in there and doing something every single day for some uh, higher highs and lower lows if you're looking at, let's say, a month snapshot of what you've done, what you've accomplished in the gym. So if you go for a month, and again, here's a million dollars. I'm going to give it to you in June. So from now till June, to get to that uh, 25 pull-ups I'm going to challenge you or whatever, if you look at this six-month period of time, the best thing to do, I'm just making this up as an example or a hypothetical, but it does have relevance. 
let's say that once every month you did a max effort. So in January 1st, you did your first one and you did 20. And whoo, your arms were sore for three days. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just way out blowing the, blowing the gasket out. And you probably need a month of recovery before you do something crazy like that again. But if you did that in February, March, April, and May, you're going to get up to 25 and you're going to collect the money. Even if there's a lot of holes and blanks in the ensuing days of your schedule. But if you get to that point on February 1st where you feel great because you've been recovering, taking it easy, you've been doing workouts where you're doing you know, moderate efforts that are building and, and nourishing your, uh, your muscles and your recovery and all that, and you just try to hit those peak performance highs once in a while, that's going to get you to, you know, when we're replaying this show six months after it first airs, and you're not getting any better, or you're not any fitter, the reason is, is because you're too consistent, you're not being intuitive enough, and you're probably in overtraining spiral. So it's about loosening up and taking, taking those higher high opportunities when you have them, when you feel fantastic, and then allowing yourself to ride out the lows without feeling guilty or compromising the process of recovery. Yeah, I love that, Brad, because we all have those days, don't we, where we hit the gym and you're feeling great and everything just happens easy. And we all have those days where you just think, today is just hard work. <laughs> you know, it's just a struggle. So, I think listening to your body on those days is a fantastic piece of advice. Now, Brad, we're almost out of time, but there's one thing I really need to ask you about, and it'd be remiss of me not to ask you about it. I want to know about speed golf, Brad. Tell me about that. Oh, my gosh. And if there's any uh, Speed Golf Australian listeners, hey, good day out there. They have a great movement down there that's promoting the sport, and they come over to America and compete I've, in the big tournaments. I've uh, but Speed Golf, yeah, yeah, I know. It's pretty <laughs> obscure, but if you're an endurance athlete and you like golf, oh, my gosh, I, I think it's the greatest sport in the world. I appreciate you asking me. But it, it is a competition where you play in a golf tournament, and you count your score, and you count the number of minutes you spend on the course playing your round. So it's a combination of score and speed. So example, if you go out there and shoot an 80 and it takes you 40 minutes to complete the course, your speed golf score is 120. Um, so it's not about just racing around like crazy with one club and hockey pucking the ball and making a 10 on every hole. Um, you know, the, these, the strokes are very valuable and you play faster when you're shooting a better score anyway. So there's a lot of strategy and it's kind of like, uh, in the winter Olympics biathlon where they're skiing and then they have to stop and shoot at the target. And if they miss, they have to ski farther. Um, so it's that kind of thing where there's a reward for, um, scoring well. But you also can't dilly-dally around because you're wasting too much time and um, you're, they're counting your clock too. Yeah, it looks like lots of fun. I've got to say, I looked at uh, one of the world record holders or one of the, the you know, top uh, speed golf athletes and he was talking about his score being something like 115. And I thought, well, that's actually less than my golf score I shot last time I played. I play golf about once a year. So, you know, I, I'd be adding my time on top of that and I'd be behind before I even started adding my time. So, it's a pretty impressive effort and it, and it did look like lots of fun. I can imagine it being pretty enjoyable to play golf in that way. So, I, I had to ask you about it. It seemed pretty cool, Brad. Now, we, we are out of time, Brad. So, uh, you know, people are going to want to find out heaps more about you. 
particularly people who are into endurance are going to want to know more detail about your approach and how they go about doing it. So as you said, they can check you out on your Primal Endurance podcast. Um, they can get your book, Primal Endurance, which was co-written by yourself and Mark Sisson, which is amazing. Um, and they can, they're going to be able to find out about your Primal Endurance e-course, which is coming out early 2017. So all the details for that, you can go to bradkearns.com. That's B R A D. K-E-A-R-N-S dot com um, and they're going to find out all the information about you there as well as all the links through to your social media and all that sort of stuff. So um, if they make sure they're, they're keeping an eye on the That Paleo Show page or subscribe to our That Paleo Show newsletter, they'll definitely find out about your e-course when it comes out as well because I'm keen to share that. It sounds like it's going to be fantastic, Brad. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show today, mate. Thank you, Brad. It was a lot of fun. I love what you're doing down there and across the world to your listeners and the, uh, the communications that you get out. And we can't wait to um, help bring your book to, to life in the States here coming up. So great to make the connection. And thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, it's going to be really excited to have Nourish Without Nagging published by Primal Blueprint Publishing. I've been telling everyone about that because I'm so excited about it. It's such a big deal for me. So I can't wait for that to happen and to share some of my ideas with your American audience as well, Brad. It's going to be awesome. So thank you so much, mate. All right. So until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.